Nick, welcome to the Lewis and Kyle show. There's a lot of fun stuff to get into. I'm excited for this. Thanks for having me. Let's do it. Absolutely. The first question I have for you, I'm in a position and similar to probably where Marshall was, it sounds like when he started helping with Support Shepherd. Basically, I wanted to kind of frame, I've heard you on a lot of interviews, kind of tell the story from your perspective of you hire this company, they're at a 20 to 40K in revenue, been around for about a year, and then you kind of get involved as an influencer and like blow them up to some extent. Is that like a playbook you'd recommend to service businesses? How do you think about from like the point of view of someone and, and you've kind of repeated this model several times? Like, is that something that you would, and you say you work with a lot of agencies, is that something you actively encourage them to replicate? Or is that something that's kind of unique to the advantages you have? From the agency side, if I were a business owner, I don't know. I haven't really spent much time thinking about it from Marshall's standpoint when he brought me on, you know, with the job of distribution. But yeah, from, I, I just have a very unique audience. I think not all distribution is the same, right? Not all eyeballs are the same. And I have a platform that attracts people who own and run companies. So if you're selling to people who own and run companies, my audience is very valuable. We've done some partnerships with folks with millions of followers on Twitter and their audiences do not overlap at all. They don't have the same type of people. It's a bunch of 17-year-olds, 25-year-olds, don't own companies, no interest in entrepreneurship. They are not buyers. They don't have $10,000 checks to write to consulting firms. So it's unique. But I mean, that's my whole playbook right now. My playbook right now is, you know, use the platform that I've built, 150,000 newsletter subscribers, 300,000 people on Twitter, 40,000 on LinkedIn, growing on some of the other, trying to grow on some other platforms, but use that to add as much value to these people who are following me as possible. And then also let them know about some of these companies and offerings that I have. One thing that Kyle had pointed out to me before we'd started that I didn't totally realize, and it's kind of one of those things that's always obvious in hindsight, is that you've been writing online for kind of a very long time. I think sometimes people kind of just assume that since they, they find you at some, like statistically speaking, the majority of people who follow you followed you like when you were already at some level of social proof. If that comes at like 30K, now you're 300K, mm -hmm. right? It's like 90% mm -hmm. of people, you were already kind of big time. How long were you kind of trying this before it really caught on? And what do you think, what clicked in your minds that made you suddenly good, like go from not good to good at gaining followers? Yeah, I, I listened to the very first podcast episode that I recorded in December of 2018. A couple of weeks ago, I listened to the first episode. It was cringeworthy. I mean, I didn't know how to speak. I stuttered all the time. I said, like every other word. And it just was not organized. It wasn't coherent. I've been practicing for, what, six years now. So it's, it changes. When you release a podcast episode every week for six years, almost six years, a lot changes. And then, you know, just writing sales copy takes a ton of practice. People think that it's a science that you can study and learn. No, it's an art that you have to practice and get good at over time. It's a muscle that you're building. So I wrote for a long time before it really kicked in. A lot of it was on Reddit in the early days. And Reddit was a a brutal place for people who are trying to promote things. And I was always trying to promote my blog or my podcast or whatever it was. So I, I got sent through the ringer, but it made me better. One thing that I pointed out to Lewis was that all of your recent businesses that you've brought into the fold, and I say recent, but I've been following you for a while. And at first it was, you know, the self-storage guy. And now you have this distribution platform that you're able to, to leverage. And each of the people that you bring on, I, I, where I think that you're primary role is distribution, their businesses are framed as the cost segregation guy, the delegation guy, et cetera. Is there a, a specific reason for that? Yeah, I think having uh, 
distribution in its in their own right these companies having the accounts that then reach customers in their own rights is also extremely valuable <laughs> you know they can talk their book over and over again to these people who follow them and i can only do so much as the uh you know brains or the you know the main distribution behind it the top of funnel so yeah getting distribution and followers to each of these individual accounts is definitely really important and I, I spend a lot of time trying to grow these individual accounts for these individual companies so that they can live and breathe and, and grow in their own right. But the, the idea is that the distribution power or, or growth will be greater because of this personally branded company, Twitter. You don't see that a lot. Like people generally have their business account. Is that something, you know, that you've developed that's kind of your, just part of your playbook? Yeah, that's my playbook. That's right. I start a company. I start a Twitter account with that company. I put out value to the people who want to follow that Twitter account in that perfect niche of what I'm after. Almost every single company Twitter account does one thing. It posts hashtags and stupid links to articles. That's all it does. My approach is a little bit different. Hey, we're going to teach people things, teach smart people even more stuff if they follow this account. And this is a company account. It's a company account that knows how to write copy. This is a company account that knows how to teach people things. It's a worthy follow. 99% of small businesses out there are not worthy follows on social media. I can't think of any, none of them. Unless you're chasing Starbucks coupons, there's not a single company account on Twitter that's worth following. Now, if I'm a business owner and I look at Nick and I see, oh, he's got this partner, you know, that's the delegation guy and that's support Shepard's corporate account. I can follow the delegation guy and I can actually learn tips on delegation. I can learn how to hire. I can learn how to, you know, pass on, you know, tasks to these other folks in my team. This is a value add account. And I'm the type of guy, you've heard Gary Vee talk about jab, right hook. That's exactly what this is. It's add value, sell, add value, sell, add value, sell, add value, sell, sell. And the more value you add, the more rapport you build with your followers, the more that you can sell and they're going to trust you to buy from you. Yeah, it's kind of somewhere in the middle of the, especially like in the self-improvement Twitter space, kind of just the anonymous account, right? With like some Greek statue as the image and no like personality behind it. And those just blow up and all they do is just say that, like anonymous, right? It's kind of like taking that idea of just these like anonymous theme page Twitter accounts that blow up for no reason, but then actually just making those kind of about something. And again, it makes a lot of sense. So you don't have to exhaust your personal brands talking about something that's too niche to be talked about seven times a week. Obviously you bring it up once a month and everyone loves it. But like if every thread was just remote team, it's just like, what are you talking about? Yeah. So and, it makes and I'm a actually... Lot of sense. I think I'm learning slowly. And, and if you come and if we do this interview again in a year, I think I will have transitioned all of these company accounts to individual people's names. Um, my web development company, WebRun, is Will Wallace. My bold SEO, my SEO link building firm is Simon Purden. My recruiting firm for American talent is Brian Colonio. I think the anonymous account is losing a lot of, you know, power on Twitter. It's harder to sell when you're an anonymous account. People don't trust you. People don't see you. People can't, you know, put a name with a face. And when it comes to monetizing and building a business and building trust and building a brand, a person is so much more valuable than an anonymous Twitter account. I, and, and just in general, if we want to talk about the difference between anonymous and you know personal on Twitter, I have so much more respect for the people who are out there building in public under a brand name. If you're willing to put your name behind, whether it be a company, one of my operators putting it behind a company or myself putting it behind Bolt Storage or all these individual brands that I have, you have so much more to lose. Think about the risk if your name is behind an actual company and you know that you have launched and you're servicing customers, you're taking payments, you're raising money, you're buying and managing real estate, whatever it could be, the, the risk of that 
in social capital is horrific. You screw somebody over, you treat somebody incorrectly, you lose everybody's money, you make a big mistake, your company blows up, it's all on you. It's on your name. Your reputation is damaged in the eyes of everybody in this online community. The anonymous accounts can just deactivate the account and walk away. Nobody knows who they are. So the people who post pictures of, you know, the emojis over their faces and they're afraid to show your, their face on Twitter, there's nothing at all wrong with that. I understand why they do it for sure. And I do like some of the accounts. The strip mall guy's an excellent one. You know, the car dealership guy. Some of these are amazing brands on Twitter. But when you zoom out, the people who are putting their names and their faces behind their companies, that's where the true power is if you want to monetize and if you want to sell. Because look, people trust me because I'm a human. They can look me up. They know if they really want to look me up, they can figure out where I live and what I do and what my kids' names are. That is how you build trust by putting your reputation on the line. Yeah, I think that your team is just growing so quickly. And Kyle you know, pointed that out to me earlier today. It's like we were kind of having our pre-discussion in terms of the different things we could cover and what makes the most sense to cover. He was saying how, you know, especially your type of business person where it's such a traditional like thing where so many of those people prefer to stay anonymous. Like that's something that's very interesting that there's only so many of these like self-storage people. Again, it's kind of become more trendy recently or it did at least a couple of years ago. But the fact that you put all of this name and reputation behind it has brought in like, if you're going to do it, fully capitalize on it, right? If it's like you're going to make the sacrifices of losing the anonymity for whatever reasons, it's like at least you fully extract every piece of value that you can out of it. This is not a new phenomenon. People building personal brands that are insanely valuable is not a new phenomenon, right? All the tech investors, you know, the PayPal mafia who went on to be the biggest VCs, they all built their personal brands in early 2000s and they piggybacked on that to build massive, you know, investment portfolios. Zoom back even further, you got the Tony Robbins era of, you know, public speaking and the personal media brand that he's built, you know, move forward. You got Grant Cardone, Ty Lopez, you know, Gary Vee, all these folks. But back up even more, you got Warren Buffett. You know, you got these people who they build this personal brand because Warren sat at his, you know, meetings and did these pressers for hours and answered questions and became a very good speaker. He can speak almost as other, you know, very good writers can write business copy. That is Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. They sit up there and they just, they release zingers that people love and people start to trust them. And people say, oh, whatever Warren Buffett's buying, I'm buying. I trust him. You know, there is no difference between what he is doing and, you know, what guys like me on a much, much smaller scale are trying to do, right? It's do business, share it all in public, talk about it all, get people to trust you. And then the flywheel starts of of those people becoming customers. They're going to buy Berkshire stock. They're going to you know, go to your events, whatever it could be that, you know, kind of accelerates your career. And when it comes to business, um, there's nothing more powerful than having a trustworthy following of, of other people who do business. There's something you mentioned uh, earlier about the the value of a, of a name behind a brand and how much they have to lose. I've heard from a lot of people, like, I, I, I want to do real estate deals. And one thing that I hear from people who've done a lot of real estate deals is if you mess up your first one and you raise a bunch of money and lose a bunch of people a bunch of money, you're kind of toast. It's going to be really difficult to do it again. Do you believe that to be true? And also, what kind of hurdles do you need to get over in order to you know, finally pull that trigger and be ready to, to do a deal with other so people's you to, money? You want me to be honest with you? When it comes to real estate, advice is a double-edged sword when it comes to real estate. You're getting advice from people who have done real estate well. They've built wealth. They've got deals that have gone well. They've made their investors money. They've built a career. 
they've built a massive amount of wealth. They are not in the same situation as somebody who has nothing to lose and is trying to get their start. And frankly, if they looked at their first deals, the first deals that they did, the first deals that they raised money for, they would not do those deals again because of the risk. Like that's the honest advice. So yes, go get advice from smart real estate investors who have done it before, but almost every single one of them is going to tell you that your first deal is not quite good enough, or that's not a home run, or that's too risky. If I looked back at my development, I built a self-storage facility from the ground up when I was 27, 26 years. We started planning when I was 24, got it built and finished and open when I was 27 years old. If I looked at that first deal now and somebody came to me for a consulting call, I would spend an hour trying to talk them out of that deal. Does that make sense? Because I don't have the same risk appetite now. I'm not going to lever up 70% on a new development construction project and try to open it and get it ran. We built that thing for 2.9 million. It's worth over $10 million today. It's been a phenomenal, it's life-changing for me. That deal catapulted everything, put cash in my banks. So we could go buy more storage. It gave me a reputation, you know, but somebody comes to me now and shows me a deal. I'm going to say, well, oh, I probably wouldn't do that deal. You got to get, you got to find way more cash. Why are you using so much bank debt? Because the way that you play the game in real estate, when you're further along is I'm going to protect my capital. But early on, it's risk on. I got nothing to lose. I don't have a mortgage. I don't have, you know, a ton of employees. I don't have all this net worth that I'm trying to protect. So you got to be really careful about getting advice in real estate because the people that you get advice from are in a totally different life phase. Does that help? I love that. That's a, <laughs> that, that's a perfect answer, I think. It's just, you're so good at content. That's one thing that I <laughs> keep telling to Lewis is like, even in that answer, it just sounds like copy. Like you're saying like Warren Buffett, it's just, you have this trained in you to give good answers. And also that's just true. One thing that Lewis and I say to each other a lot is that you can't unlearn what you've already learned. And for people who are, you know, 30 years into doing deals, they're just in a completely different, they can't remember what it was like to be me or to be new to the business. Well, well said. I think another way of thinking about that, Kyle, that's interesting is kind of just assuming that people are really mature in like every dimension. So what Nick's pointing out is like a very like self-aware thing to realize, right? It's like the reason their advice isn't good is because they're just like not putting them in their shoes. That's like a level of like not spiritual, but like emotional awareness and self-awareness and like introspection. And a lot of people who are very far along in a specific path, like real estate or any path, it doesn't really matter at all. It's just like they're successful in that they've been doing that thing successfully for a long time, but that doesn't mean that they're like an introspective person who spent a lot of time thinking about how to answer that question. Well, they just have spent a lot of time getting better at this singular skill on that domain, but not the like, obviously where like writing and content forces you to like always be asking the question of like, how's this helpful to someone 10 years ago? How's this helpful to? So it's kind of just the fallacy of thinking that someone's also done like all the same personal development just because they're also successful in the like very specific domain of the industry. Hmm. Well said. I think in terms of, again, very specific things that are like hot on my mind. And I, I think in terms of the podcast is like a way for me to get an additional opinion on some of the debates I'm having with my business partner. And we're very much at that stage now where we're kind of trying to pay ourselves a little bit more so we can like fully kind of de-risk like any desire to leave what we're doing. And then it's like, okay, but we're at capacity in terms of like basic roles like project managers and like these like not there's not like a lot of low-hanging fruit for like very easy work and so it's a lot of the debate about like 
American team, in-person team, camaraderie, or remote, distributed, global. And because a lot of that, like we see ourselves, again, as people who are at the early stages of building what will become, whether it's a series of companies, like we don't see this being like a small thing in the long term. And so we, maybe we're overthinking these early decisions, maybe not. But we still kind of have a little bit of like, not an alignment, but he's just very hesitant for the whole remote thing. I'm very open to the whole remote thing. And there's like lots and lots of pros and cons. But you've gone very deep to the extent you can in terms of at least management of all remote, all distributed as much as possible, like hiring abroad and succeeding with it. In terms of like specifically like roles like on the same level and caliber as like project management, not just like data entry, right? We're, we're very much past like data entry. We're a data automation company, so we didn't do data entry. We just, if we, anything, totally relevant for us. Mm-hmm. But how do you think, like, why did you make those decisions? Why, why were the trade-offs worth it for you in terms of like significant, sophisticated roles being, yeah. I think business is very nuanced and there's a hundred ways to win. That's why the business books and the advice is all really tough. And that's why it's tough for me to give you advice here. I think a business goes through an evolution and the evolution always the first year is you're in the trenches doing the work. You're doing the work and you have, yes, you can delegate delegate tasks. I, I, I'd say there's like, there's two levels of delegation. One is delegating just tasks. You as the business owner, you're still making all the decisions. Now, for most business owners, that's their whole career. They can make millions of dollars. They can run great businesses and they are making every single decision. They have a team of five or 10 people. They're all reporting to them and all those people are simply doing tasks. The evolution though, if you want to have a work-life balance, step out of your business, grow your business larger, learn how to actually operate companies that can grow and thrive without you doing anything, you have to like make that transition to delegating decisions. And you got to find that next level of, like you're saying, high-powered people, project managers, maybe American-based people that are paid well. And the, trans- the transition happens, you know, there's two things that happen really that, that guide it. Number one is you start to raise your prices, like period. Like in order to afford that middle layer of management, you have to be able to charge double what other companies are charging for your work. So yes, it has to be better work. And yes, you have to have more distribution. And yes, you have to have more marketing and more brand reputation. You have to have things inside your company that allow you to charge more money, period. And then you as a business owner, the second thing is you as a business owner shift from, hey, I'm doing all the work to I'm going to do half the work. I'm going to work half time and I'm going to spend my other half the time chasing down talent. Period. Like that's me. That's all I do now. I tweet, I grow my brand and I chase talent. If you do business well at scale, all you are doing is chasing talent. You're not doing anything inside your company. You are chasing down and hunting people that can do really high level work. Okay, so. It's a, trans- it's a transition. Hey, I'm charging X and I'm making this much money per week. I can't afford a $130,000, $140,000 employee that can really kick some ass inside my company. But if I, if I charge a little bit more, I can. And then I'm stressed. I got to go sell a little bit more. It's just a constant you know, battle up that chain of spending less and less time in the trenches doing the work, managing clients, and doing more delegating of decisions and getting you know, people in the door and paying them well paying them an uncomfortable amount so that they can do great work for you. And another, it's it, like, it's all just an evolution of delegation. As a good delegator, as somebody with a ton of experience delegating, it's easier, it's less, less risky. Maybe you have cash in the bank. Cash in the bank makes delegation way less scary. But yeah, it's a skill that you got to practice and, and pound. And the only way to get better at delegating is to do it. Uncomfortably delegate a little bit more each day, raise your prices a little bit more each day, 
and you wake up five years from now with no job and you don't even know what the hell's going on inside your own company. That's a pretty good feeling. That's also a helpful way of describing as well as just the longer term, just like, yeah, five years from now, there's no way we're not having this figured out. And we've had, the good news is we've had success, several successful failed delegates. We're, 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 you know, failing successfully along the way up several times. We're, we're definitely not afraid to make mistakes, which is critical. I think it's all about more of that would be risk. good. Yeah, it's all mm-hmm. about risk. It's all about risk. How risky is delegating a certain position? If you just left your job a year ago, got less than 50 grand in the bank, your company's cash flowing less than 10 grand a month, a delegating to a big hire is extremely risky. That hire goes wrong, your business is sunk, you're going back and getting a job. You're five years down the road as a business owner or three years down the road as a business owner, you got 500 grand in the bank, you're making 50 grand a month, then delegating somebody and hiring them at 20 grand a month is not risky. They don't work out, six months later, you fire them, whatever. It's all, you know, you cannot get the cart before the horse here. A lot of people read my stuff on Twitter. They listen to us on this podcast and they think, oh, I got to go out and hire that next big talented person. Most businesses are not ready for that. You got to log the time and take these incrementally uncomfortable steps along the way instead of just trying to, trying to you know, skip second base and go from first to third. Speaking of the relative risk of a decision like delegation, given money in the bank and cash flow, you've built a lot of your businesses on the kind of backbone of real estate, of self-storage. How has doing that allowed you to make riskier decisions and and ultimately have bigger wins? I think throughout the real estate's tough because real estate does not cash flow like small business does, period. Especially if you're a sponsor. Look, the the debt market dries up and the you know transaction volume drops, you do not get paid. I don't get paid. Like right now as a real estate investor is not fun because the debt's expensive. We're not doing deals at scale and we're not selling anything. We're not putting on debt on anything. We're not getting chunks of money to the bank account. In real estate, you make money in chunks. You don't make money as a sponsor in monthly cash flow, at least not like significant money. In order to make significant money on a monthly basis in real estate, I would need to deploy $10 million. If I deployed $10 million of my own capital, I would make a million dollars a year in real estate. Small business, on the other hand, a small business can grow from 50 grand a month to 500 grand a month in a year. And it happened at, at Shepherd. Like that happened. And when that happens, cash flow goes from 10 grand a month to 70 grand a month. For a minority owner, that is life changing money. And that, when that keeps happening month after month, and all of a sudden you look in your bank account, you just made a couple big investments, and all of a sudden there's 700 grand in there again. It's like, wow, this is different than real estate. Small business is different than real estate. I like this. And also, I can make some investments. I can be a little bit more risky. I can, you know, make a couple of hires. And it's not risky at all when you have serious cash flow coming in. I think that's very interesting. That's why I like the small business game. It's fun. It's like, I see that it's just, I was invested so much in seeing over the of those stories happening that just one, it builds like the belief and like that's going to happen soon. And then same thing, just not the starting capital, not like locking up your capital. And it's just such a repeatable skill as well, because yep. you're like, I can always just find another niche or go to another service business as well and just help them grow that service. So it's cool how you've kind of, not shifted, but just again, during, it's also like just, I don't want to say less cyclical, but I feel like there's fewer external factors because there's always some companies in some industries that have money and always need some things done. So as long as you can kind of be like quick to read the market, right? I don't don't think now in July of 23 is the time to start like the new clips agency, but there's some equivalence of the clips agency that like social media clips, everyone was making social media clips a couple months ago and that was popping off, but there's some group of people with money and if you can find a growth channel for them to make more money, that as a conceptual model, I feel like is always in style, unless we're just like truly 
hemorrhaging as an entire society, which is a sad conversation. Uh, I agree. A well-operated business is has some serious staying power. Real estate's more expensive because it has the ultimate staying power. Like real estate, if you have an unlevered you know, portfolio of $50 million worth of self-storage, the worst years, you're going to make two and a half million bucks. The best years, you're going to make five. Like that's just how it happens. Small businesses can do five, six, 800 grand a month. All of a sudden, a couple customers leave, a couple things change, and boom, you're making zero money. Zero money. The trucking industry, great example. These folks printed money the last two years. The small regional owners of trucking businesses were cranking millions of dollars a year. You could own, you know, nine, 10, 15 trucks and make a couple million dollars a year with serious volume. Now they're hemorrhaging cash, making zero. So imagine if you'd built up a lifestyle, started taking risks, doing whatever, and all of a sudden it's gone. So it's a double-edged sword and I haven't seen one go south on me yet, but I'm not foolish enough to, to think that it, that it can't happen. I want to talk about some of your kind of more contrarian points of view and maybe like also clarify some. So you're definitely someone who has, let's call it like a skeptical take of like traditional education, just in terms of like lots of the things are useless. I think usually, but obviously there's like nuances where if you need X for X specific reason, then maybe it is worth the time and money to invest. I think one of the more ways you directly ask people to answer that question that kind of gets a more honest answer is like, what's your current opinion on like for your own children, if you will advise college or not? Like, how do you think you'll be handling that conversation with them? However many years from now, the first one's going to be like thinking about it. Are you ready for me to flip flop again? I think college is phenomenal. I'm absolutely going to send my kids to college. Absolutely. But it's not the school that is valuable. I mean, it, it became really cool about a year ago on social media to start poo-pooing college degrees. College degrees are completely worthless. I'm not sending my kids to college. These were rich Silicon Valley tech folks saying that college was worthless while they're sitting on a Stanford degree and doing business with six people they met in their freshman year econ class. Like how ridiculous is does that really sound? I met my wife at college. I met my business partner at college. I met four of my best friends that had a massive influence on me to help me think bigger at the next level. And I was an 18-year-old idiot when I went to college. Idiot. I was not ready to start a company. I was not ready to go find a wife. I was not ready to make decisions to impact the rest of my life. I went to college and I grew up around other people who wanted to do big things because I went to the Ivy League. So I'm no, I'm not going to send my kids to trade school. They don't need to do that. Like, should many kids go to trade school? Absolutely. Am I going to send mine? No. So yeah, I mean, I can crap on the college courses and the curriculum and the debt a lot. And I think so many people do college wrong that it just frustrates the heck out of me. But no, it's very worth it. And I enjoyed the heck out of my college years. I don't remember anything I studied and I didn't learn much, but I learned how to study. I learned how to learn. And I met amazing people and grew up and learned how to sell myself and my ideas. I learned how to manage time. I learned how to go have fun on Wednesday night and get my work done and, you know, Asa, you know, pass an exam on Friday. Like I knew I learned how to do that stuff while also starting a company, meeting my wife and becoming an All-American in track and field. I mean, it was a phenomenal experience. It gave me confidence going to college, a good college and thriving and succeeding gave me confidence to tackle a lot of the harder things later on in life. I think decision-making is the skill, the ultimate skill that leads to success. It's not intelligence. It's not physical strength anymore. It's like, it's literally your ability to make a decision will you know, decide whether or not you're going to live a good life. And I went to college and started making low stakes decisions. Hey, am I going to party tonight or am I going to study tonight? There's a consequence of both those things. I started making those decisions. I started living with the consequences and I got better at decision making. So that when I got out, I could start a company and make a little bit higher stakes decisions. 
get better and better. And now I'm making very high stakes decisions, but I'm a better decision maker because of all those low stakes decisions that I got to practice making, which is underrated. Yeah, you hinted at there's still wrong ways to do college and there's still right ways to do college. So I guess that's how my follow-up question is like, how would you frame it in terms of what is a, what's that selling up for a, a good college experience, basically? Yeah, I think it's like, I think yeah, the, the, pa- the, the Patriot League, the Bucknells, the, you know, Lafayette's, the, these colleges that cost 60 grand a year and they're liberal, liberal arts schools without a serious alumni network and going to those colleges and going into massive debt as a middle-class American is the dumbest thing you could possibly do, in my opinion. There's also the kids that are trying to chase athletics and go on a one-third or one-fourth golf or baseball scholarship to some of these very expensive liberal arts schools. That is a dumb way to do college. Um, going to a state school for 20 grand a year, that's a massive school and can give you an amazing college experience is the right way to do college, in my opinion. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Lewis and I both went to Alabama. <clears throat> so that's the giant state school. We both enjoyed it and we met there and have tons of friends and, uh, you know, wouldn't be where we're at without it. So uh, it's easy to shit on the education that you get. But as you pointed out, that's not what is important. I, I was curious, though, you majored and I know you don't remember anything you studied, but labor and industrial relations is a pretty like niche major and you kind of have to continue to make the decision to study something in college just quickly why that i studied um, industrial labor relations ilr at cornell and it's hr basically they they invented this school to um, help companies and unions and everybody navigate the wagner act of 1935 that made unions a thing so companies could now unionize employees could now unionize the state didn't know what to do. We said, we have nobody who understands the Wagner Act. These unions are happening. What do we do? So New York State founded the Labor Relations School at Cornell to help companies and unions learn the Wagner Act and then implement it with labor unions. We all know what happened. And now that labor unions are you know, virtually obsolete, uh, they've, they've served their purpose. They served an amazing purpose for the, the American workers in the, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, all the way through the early 2000s. But now almost all employees in America have a lot of rights. They've, they've got protections. They're not getting abused by companies like they were. Unions are not important, but as with anything, very slow to change the, the, the uh, education system. So they still have the ILR school and they're still teaching labor relations and they're still teaching union negotiations at our school. 35 or so percent of the people who graduated went to HR and started learning how to hire people and complain about people for breaking workplace rules. Toby from the office. Another 40% went to law school and it was just a pre-law degree and they went to become an attorney of some other, in, in some other field. And then the rest just went on to do random stuff. I chose that major because the college track coach at Cornell said, hey, Nick, I can get you in Cornell if you are willing to go to this ILR school. And I said, I don't know what ILR stands for, but I'm in. So I went there, I got the classes kicked out, you know, got them out of the way. And then I went to, you know, study, take some business classes and just have fun. I mean, I didn't, I was taking the easiest classes possible by senior year because I, I had a pretty good vision of what I wanted to do. And I just doing a p- ton of schoolwork for no reason wasn't really a part of it. So yeah, it's, it's all by chance and I enjoyed it, but it wasn't that critical for me. I think that's probably the most helpful thing. I feel like, you know, again, like Kyle, so we've both been aware of you for a long time, but there's a level of intensity that I start reading all of your work with and prep for a podcast, right? It's like the same kind of just a name on a Twitter feed that like, this is interesting, but this is also interesting. And like, this isn't my exact thing, but this is interesting and feels good versus like, okay, like I need to show up ready to have a conversation. Let me like actually 
like my brain is just 10 times as much on when I like read everything you say. And what's really standing out to me, and again, from this podcast again, is decision-making being like not a weakness of mine, but not a, again, it's like I could choose to place myself anywhere on the spectrum. It depends on who I'm comparing myself to. I guess that's another one of your big things is like expectations and comparison. But in terms of like the decisiveness that you seem to possess is a clear, clearly identified thing that I'm like, that is a, a level up for me to increase my decisiveness in decision-making. And that frame is very helpful. One one specific question on that, and maybe you can comment on kind of the, the whole opinion, is your decision to kind of, I, I, I told you I come from a crypto background. So, you know, but to ape into effectively the FANG industry, whether that was six months ago, 12 months ago, basically seeing all the big tech just go down 50%, go on huge discounts and just like very decisively buy into that super aggressively. What was the the framing for that decision? There's a similar crossover application from the decisiveness in terms of like making business decisions and mm-hmm. being able to make big swings with a kind of like personal net worth. I think that the fact that so many people are very intelligent and overanalytical and super involved in certain things, I think that can create massive blind spots. I think most decisions, business, investing, whatever, there's two or three variables that have an 80% chance of impacting the end result. Okay. All the other variables that you're digging through, you know, earnings reports, you're studying, you're analyzing the long tail of information on any decision, all that does is confuse the hell out of you and and confuses the hell out of people. So I saw the best companies in the world, Google, Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, and whichever one I'm missing, Amazon. I saw those companies go down 50 to 60%. Facebook went down 70%. I just had a couple big cash out refis. I had about two and a half million dollars of cash And I was like, this kind of seems like a no-brainer. I bought a ton. I bought it all the way down and I bought a ton of, I bought 200 200 grand of Meta at $94, like the day after the low. And I was on the golf course and I was like talking to my wealth manager buddies. They sit in offices and all they do is study equities and they're deploying capital for their investors. And they said, it's a bear market. I would never invest into a bear market. I don't invest into a bear market. You're going to get burned. It's like, oh, that's kind of scary. Really? You think the best company is going down 50%? Google, Google went down 50%. And you think I'm going to get burned by buying it at this if I have a five-year hold period? They're like, I don't buy in bear markets. You never buy in bear markets. And then I looked at my, you know, I posted on Facebook. I was like, okay, maybe I'm missing something. This, maybe this guy's a dummy. Posted on Facebook that I started buying Meta and Google. And 80% of the responses were, these companies are, you know, earnings are going to get way worse. Ad spend's drying up. You know, it's all going away. That's a horrific buy. You look back at my post when I told everybody I was buying into these companies. And look, I don't know what I'm doing. It wasn't a massive amount of money. I'm not trying to brag. This is just how I think about things. They all thought it was stupid. And I was, I was just like, okay, well, I think all of you guys are freaking dumb because these are great companies. There's no way there's going to be a, a massive problem. You all are overthinking this. And I held it for seven months until June. And I had my 2.2 million that I invested was 3.2 million. So I sold a big chunk. I sold a million dollars all the way down to 2 million. Then it went back up to 2.6 and now I'm selling another half all the way down to 1.3 because the stocks are ran up and that added a ton of insurance for me to start these companies, to be ready to invest in some real estate. And it was just like, it got to a point where the stocks were back. They were back to where they were. And I was like, hey, these stocks going up another 20, 30% is not going to change my life. But if they drop down and I don't have this cash to put in storage and put in companies and buy 
you know, do massive media buying for my email newsletter that I'm doing right now, about to go out for, you know, a book that I'm going to need to really invest in a book tour with. This has been a good investment. I'm going to sell a lot of my stocks. So I have limit orders now to, to sell massive chunks all the way down to back down to about 1.2 million. I'm going to keep, you know, 150 grand of all the big tech and about 250 grand of meta. I'm just going to hold on to them for a while, but yeah, that's how it went down. First of all, congratulations. That's sick. But I think Lewis and I, me to a lesser extent, Lewis to a greater extent, are incredible at gathering information and that being a part of our decision-making process. It's like, okay, if I make this decision, here's the 10, like, the 10 outcomes from that that I can see. And like here, if I spend, you know, a week in, in Mexico City, then this will happen. And it's like, very difficult for both of us, I think, to use a small amount of information to make a decision, even though we could make, you know, five times more decisions if we just like had a criteria and needed less time and, and less information to make a decision when generally, usually, you know, what you're going to decide way before you actually do it. And then you're just like looking for your own confirmation bias. And so... Yeah, that's, I think that's something that Lewis and I both need to work on. It's great to hear your perspective on it. I'm shifting a little bit, though, as I learn and as I talk to more and more people. Marshall Haas is the operator of Support Shepherd. He is a very close friend of mine, and he's a phenomenal operator. That's a $25 million business now, and it's less than four years old. That's impressive. He makes decisions slower. He takes a, he takes a step back. He thinks on them. He'll analyze them, and then he'll purposely just... I'm talking about a big directional business decision. He'll purposely wait a week. He's going to hire somebody, whatever it might be. I am the other way around. If I get in my company, I'm shaking it up. I'm moving stuff. I, if I say somebody to do something, I want it done today. If I make a decision, I'll do it today. I'll make a decision in 10 minutes. All these things that are awesome for smaller businesses to grow the smaller businesses because it's constant. You know, you can move really fast when you make quick decisions. I think the skill set to grow a company from $10 million equity value to 25 or 50 you really have to slow down. You really have to slow down. There's a reason why JP Morgan op operates at 35% profit margin today and they're over 100 years old and they move insanely slow and their management team is massive and it's a giant bureaucracy. They, it's not broke. Like They don't need to make quick decisions. Get people in seats to do the job and then cash in on the fact that you're the largest bank in the country. That's it. Small business is a little bit different, but as you grow, I think I'm learning that a blind spot of mine is that I need to slow down and make some small, you know, slower decisions that are more impactful for the future of a company once you reach a certain scale. Yeah, I think back to the previous question, there's probably like a better framework to be drawn up here than what I'm going to come up with in terms of you know, a lot of people have an $1,000 portfolio, right? And they're spending hours and hours trying to go from 7% to 7.1%. And it's like, you know, the return on invested time is 10 cents per hour or less, probably. And you have to ask yourself, is this one of those? And then you have to also consider like the frame in general, right? Like, am I one of those people in those situations where, you know, no matter what the outcome is going to be between 6 and 8%, and I could spend 1,000 hours thinking about it or one hour thinking about it or one minute thinking about it, and the outcome is going to be a 6 to 8% situation. Or is it like the same thing, right? It's like, you tell that person with $1,000, go learn how to increase your effective hourly income by 2x, and then have $2,000 and kind of play that game. So like asking, there's probably some way of like categorizing types of questions, but is this like a person with $1,000 trying to add a percentage to their return? Or is this like a, you're just thinking about investing or whatever other area of your life, just completely narrow-minded. And again, this comes back to like, you're thinking, reading the books about from 
fund managers about squeezing percentage points out of things. We need to be reading the book about like broke people not being broke. I have a lot of thoughts on this because I think investing is one of those shiny objects that cripples so many people, especially entrepreneurs, because it's fun. Investing is fun. Being able to buy something and then watch it either go up or down is a form of gambling. Way too many people are addicted to it. Now, a lot of people come to me for self-storage advice and they say, Nick, I want to buy my first real estate property. I want to get into real estate investing. I want to get into investing. This applies to all types of investing. You could ask the same thing to Warren Buffett. Actually, Tim Ferriss got on stage and asked Warren Buffett what he would do if he had a million dollars way back. This is 20 years ago. You should watch the video. Tim Ferriss asks Warren Buffett a question. Warren Buffett says, forget investing, put in a mutual fund, a low-cost mutual fund, and go do something else. My question is always, how much cash do you have? How much cash do you have? Okay, you want to get into real estate investing. How much cash do you have? I have 50 grand is the most common. Like I have 200 grand. I have 250 grand. My answer is the same. Forget investing and go do something else. Make some more freaking money. Because investing... If you're going to spend, unless you're going to build a business, a, a GP around buying, buying real estate, raising money from a ton of outside investors, unless you're going to build a business and that's just a service business. People think I'm a real estate investor. No, I have a service that deploys capital for wealthy people and buys self-storage. It is a service. I, I don't have hundreds of millions of dollars to buy storage. So I'm raising money. I'm giving them the opportunity to buy storage. I'm managing that property. I'm getting paid a cut. I'm running a service company. I'm not yet an investor. Still to this day, I don't consider myself an investor. I am running a company. So many people love investing, spend all this time on investing, 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 when they don't have the cash to even warrant any brain damage on this stuff. I have friends that have four or 500 grand in the stock market and they are researching stocks all day. They're trying to beat the markets. They're picking these stocks. They're wasting their freaking time. They need to be focused on starting a company that can generate some cash. Start a company that can generate cash. Then you can become an investor. When you have 10, 20, $30 million, that's when you deploying capital into opportunities actually is worth your time and effort to research it and do it. Now, somebody spending 10 minutes and buying an Apple stock, Google stock and holding it for five years, I'm not saying that's a bad strategy. I'm talking about the people who are ate up with it and watching Squawk Box with Jim Cramer and you know thinking about stocks and equities all day or thinking about real estate investing all day. Forget all that. Go make some cash. If you're looking to make some cash, go to Nick's website and go to Business Ideas. He's got a lot of different ways that it's you like 200 can, plus. Uh, yeah, a, actually, a, I'll send you ton. guys. Uh, if you're listening to this, I'll send you guys a link where um, they can click it and get the PDF form of the 200 plus small business ideas. So if you're watching this, just look in the show notes and there's a link that says Nick's 200 plus ideas. You got to give me your email. It's a lead magnet, and then I'll send you a PDF with. <laughs> 200 business ideas. You don't even have to go to the website. Just click the link. You're already on the page. It's right there. All it takes is your email. Thanks, guys. Yeah. So if you had to pick, I know you're trying to get kind of numbers across the board everywhere in terms of social media followers. I know to the extent you've done analytics, we do this analysis for a couple of different influencers. Is there one for you that you feel like is the most valuable incremental follower? Like the incremental Twitter follower is more valuable or the incremental newsletter sub or the incremental YouTube sub. Like one number on each platform, which is like incrementally the most valuable to you personally. I'll give you an example. So I, my goal right now is to build an email list. The larger my email list I have, the bigger the book deal I get, the more I can, you know, the more valuable my emails are that I send once a week to advertise my companies, everything. My email list is going to supercharge my companies, my career, my life, whatever. An email list that comes in from 
let's just say two different lead magnets. Lead magnets are what I use to give people value in exchange for them joining my email list. One of them is how to cook 10 really healthy meals while you're traveling for business. That lead magnet gets, let's say 10,000 emails sign up for that lead magnet. But then I make another one that says how a self-storage profit and loss statement works. You know, I'm going to break down one of my deals. I'm going to tell you how self-storage works. And that one gets 1,000 people to sign up for it. So I have 10,000 people who are after the healthy food while traveling. And I have 1,000 people that are after how self-storage investing works and how to buy my first self-storage facility. Those 1,000 that signed up for the real estate, you know, lead magnet are going to be, I'd say 10x more valuable than the 10,000 that signed up for the food. That was a poor example of what I'm trying to say is that there's super extreme value for me in, in getting a follower or an email sub that runs a company, that has money, that has employees, that, has, that needs services. Maybe they actually buy real estate. Those are extremely valuable to me. What's not valuable to me is a 17-year-old or a 25-year-old living in their parents' basement that has no employees and plays video games all day. They're never going to buy anything from me and they're never going to, you know, meet up with me to play golf, talk business, whatever. Maybe someday. Maybe it's a future investment. But not all followers are the same. People that are scrolling TikTok mindlessly all day while, you know, taking breaks from their job at McDonald's, that's not a valuable follower for me. So I have 20,000 followers on TikTok. It's worth maybe 1,000 Twitter followers. You know, LinkedIn, about half as valuable as Twitter. Twitter is where the deal makers hang out, period. Like people go on Instagram to get their eyes stimulated by physical beauty. People go on Twitter to get their mind stimulated by physical like words on a page. Which one of those two do you think is more valuable? If you're in the business space and you want to sell, you know, business services, deal makers hang out on Twitter. And it all depends on what the content is that brings them in. If somebody finds me from an engagement rage bait about you know, pouring Pappy Van Winkle in a Diet Coke, they're not going to be nearly as valuable as somebody who follows me from talking about the tax implications of buying a self-storage facility, for example. Engagement rage bait is one of your specialties. I don't think that many people on Twitter are as good as you at that. And there's not really much more to say there other than you're just really good at it. I take it too far sometimes. I got to stay a little bit more disciplined, but it's just fun. I mean, I have a weird sense of humor like anybody else and pissing off. I, I just cannot believe it, it doesn't make any sense to me that people will get upset about what Nick Huber, who they've never met and don't know anything about what I post on a social media platform. I cannot believe that will ruin somebody's day. So I just can't help but pick on them and poke the bear over and over again. People can't see through it. They just they have no ability to read between the lines. It's hilarious. Have you done an in-depth analysis of which platforms drive the most newsletter subscribers well, it might just be so, twitter yes yeah twitter twitter drives a lot for me but cody sanchez adds tons and tons on instagram way more than i add she adds them at you know 750 a day i add them at 200 a day sahil bloom adds 3000 a day and he's getting a ton of value out of linkedin and instagram so yeah twitter is not the best at driving email subs instagram and linkedin are probably a little bit better because just the scale is more massive i mean 10 or 20 times more people use Instagram as Twitter. So it's just, you can reach way more people up there. Yeah. Well, this has been an awesome podcast. Thank you so much, Nick, for coming on. If there's a specific lead magnet you think would be interesting that you want to say, or if they're just to recommend your Twitter profile, there's some resource you put together you think people should check out. In addition to the one we just mentioned, that'd be a good time to shout it out. I can do my self-storage deal breakdown for sure. If you're, if you're interested sure. in real estate, if you buy real estate, I'll, I'll put a link to that too. So you can click that and get that. Just kind of see 
hey, I bought a storage facility for X. This is what we did to it. This is how much revenue increased. This is where the profit went. This is the profit and loss statement. This is how we marketed. This is just how we run a full deal. Those are pretty valuable for the folks that are into, into real estate investing. Perfect. Thanks so much, Nick. Thanks for having me on, gentlemen.